0: You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com slash Therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com slash Therapy30.
1: You're listening to This Little Light, a podcast about falling in love with music, Hosted by me, Flea, and produced by Cadence 13 and Parallel. Today on This Little Light, I'll be speaking with one of my favorite people on the entire
2: planet, Patti Smith. I never think of myself as a musician because I don't really think like a musician. I'm a performer. I think there's, to me, there's something different. I don't have the mindset of a musician. I'm not, my mind is filled with words, not so much sound or notes. But, um, but I'm moved by music. Patti Smith has done so much
1: as a writer, as a singer, as a rock and roll animal, and as one of the most poetic artists to ever grace this earth. She's written her memoir, Just Kids. She's written other books. She's made art books. She is an absolute, dynamic maelstrom, a tsunami of creativity, of intensity, of poignancy. She's beautiful. She's done it all. She's Patti Smith. You like punk rock? You like to rock out? Patti Smith rocks harder than anyone you've ever seen in your life. In this conversation, we talk about Patti's relationship to music as a kid, a third-grade teacher that really touched her and opened her heart to music, about her hearing little Richard and thinking, I want to do this. I can do this. About her relationship to Jimi Hendrix. About Patty's ability to just open up and let God speak. After Patty and I spoke, we jammed together for some of the kids of the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music. And um, it was so fun. <laughs> Playing with Patty is always fun. I've known Patty for a long time. I've played music with her. I've spoken with her in depth. I'm just so grateful to be her friend, and um, just as grateful to speak with her today. And I hope you enjoy it, ladies and gentlemen. Patty Smith. Let me ask you. So, in terms of music education, and in terms of you you know, developing and growing into becoming a musician. Like, whether you want to face it or not, you are a musician. You play music, you work with ry- rhythm and melody and harmony. I've heard you tell me before, I'm not a musician, I just do this. But you are. Thank uh, you. You work with all elements <laughs> of music. So, so do you remember as a kid, like when you were first ever fascinated, transported, like taken over by music, and how that affected you
2: I, as a kid? I can remember two pivotal things. The most pivotal things, I was... a like really young, like seven, eight. I was on the way to Bible school with my mother and some boys were playing uh, their record player outside. Uh, They had an extension cord and they were playing uh, uh, Little Richard. Might have been like Tutti Frutti or something. I was just a little girl and my mother was always listening to like, uh, you know, Benny Goodman or Artie Shaw or something. And I heard that and I don't know what happened to me. I still remember it. I was like, whoa. I went from a little girl going to Bible school to, like, as if I had turned into a superhero. (laughs) That music, that Little Richard, the sound of that music and the intensity of that music. And that was a very visceral thing. But the other, maybe even more important thing that happened, I was very sick with uh, Scarlet Fever. And I... How old? Maybe eight, or Mm -hmm. it was a little older than when I first heard Little Richard. And the radio was on, I was in quarantine in our little apartment, and I was listening to the radio, and this music came on that I didn't know what it was. And what it was, was it was Eleanor Stieber singing D from uh, Madame Butterfly. And hearing a human voice like that, and the, the, the arc of that narrative, I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know what opera was. I didn't know anything, but the, the, the beauty and the perfection and that whole trajectory that she went on, I thought was the most beautiful thing I ever saw or heard. And um, I uh, begged my mother. I wanted to get opera records, but they couldn't afford them back then. But eventually I did get them. But hearing that, and I used to daydream about being an opera singer, and I was the most pathetic kid. Really skinny, really sickly, no hopes of ever being an opera singer, but that's still remained my great love musically yeah.
1: do you remember when you first started listening to music and you could you knew what was making what sound like oh, that's the bass, that's the guitar, that's the saxophone
2: no, i truthfully I've never been like that. I've always uh, been vocal oriented uh, like when I thought i mean I know it might sound terrible, but yeah. but like listening to the Rolling Stones. I love dancing to them,, yeah. but I was keyed to the vocal.
0: yeah I
2: think maybe it's just and that's why I say I'm not actually I never think of myself as a musician because yeah. I don't really think like a musician, but I, I'm a performer. I yeah. think there's to me, there's something different. I don't have the mindset of a musician. I'm not my mind is filled with words, not yeah. so much sound or notes, but, um, but I'm moved by music.
1: But I, I know that like when I play with you or when I talk about music with you, you know what's going on. Well,
2: like I've been mad dogged by you before <laughs> for playing the wrong note. <laughs> but it's that James Brown thing of like, you know, I want people to keep the beat, you know, because I I I might not know the language, but I yeah. know what's supposed to be happening. You know when it doesn't feel right. Yeah, I know the I know feel. But, but also, also but
1: you also know like what's not making it feel right. So I don't I think you might <laughs> be like cutting yourself short <laughs> on what you know
2: I don't know but i I mean yeah. I've you know I was married to a musician a great yeah. musician and I've observed a human being that their whole mentality and so much of what they do is related to music yeah and uh so I have great respect for musicians but I feel that I know my worth as a performer and I know you know I've been playing for over fifty years so I know certain things but I um I still have great great admiration for musicians and uh and and gratitude of course. Mm-hmm. And
1: how about when you first started taking your words because you were writing poetry, you were writing all kinds of stuff and started turning them into songs. Was it was it like with Lenny?
2: No. Um actually the first poem I ever wrote that was Printed like in the newspaper, yeah. was an elegy to Charlie Parker. Uh. I mean, it was in like 1963, but my father really liked Charlie Parker, and so I wrote a poem to him. So I've always been connected with music and things, and I've always written poetry, but two people had uh, influenced me to create songs with my poetry. One was Bobby Newworth, because I met Bobby Newworth in the Chelsea Hotel in 1970. And of course. I love Bob Dylan and he was Bobby Newworth. He was yeah. in Don't Look Back and he saw me writing poetry in the lobby of the Chelsea. And he said to me, you're a poet. And I said, yeah, maybe. And he looks at my work and he's looking at it and he said, you should be writing songs. You know, these have a, I said, I don't know anything about that. And he said, no, you could, you could write songs. I was sort of smitten with him. Mm. So I was trying to uh, write something that he would like. But the actual first time I wrote songs for, to be performed was for Sam Shepard. Mm. For a couple of his plays, we wrote songs together. And we mm. did a play called Cowboy Mouth in 1971. Mm. And we wrote some songs for that. And that's when I started. And then I started writing lyrics for Blue Oyster Cult. You wrote lyrics for
1: Blue Oyster Cult?
2: <laughs> yep. My well, first ever rock concert I went to was Blue Oyster
1: Cult. You never told me I don't know this about you.
2: I Well, I, I was writing uh, poetry, and uh, my boyfriend was Alan Lanier. He was the uh-huh. keyboard player, yeah. and I was really close to Sandy Perlman. And I would give him my poems, and they did uh, Revenge of Vera Gemini, Career of Evil. Did you ever hear that? I, anyway. probably there's a, there's a few of them. I can't even remember, yeah. but Career of Evil was sort of a, a big bigger song. And uh, yeah. I wrote about seven or eight songs for them. Wow. <laughs> I learned a lot of what I wound up doing from other people. Like I was, because um, when living in the Chelsea Hotel, I also worked for Steve Paul and would help uh, s- sort of assist Johnny Winner. I would, ha- would have all these odd jobs as well as working in the bookstore. Johnny Winter was completely colorblind, and um, he would have trouble going across streets because he couldn't tell if it was red or green light. So sometimes I would, like, walk with him places. I even went to London with them just to walk, help Johnny walk around. But I watched him perform many times. He was one of the greatest performers I ever saw. Mm. And the first performer I ever saw leap into the people or just confront the people. Right? And which, truthfully, I learned from him. Yeah. A lot of the visceralness that I have as a performer or had especially when I was younger yeah. really came from Johnny Winter. Wow. I've never seen a more fearless performer than right. Johnny. Just go in there and come what may. And he was half blind, I, yeah, but he yeah. was like but he, he had an energy that you could feel yeah. you know before he walked in a room. He yeah. just and he wasn't conceited or anything like that. He just was given god-given this this, yeah. this electrical energy.
1: Yeah, I've seen footage of him playing and it's it's like Shockingly (laughs) intense. Yeah, and that's what I, you know, I, you know, for me, I had similar experiences. Just like as a kid, when I, you know, I was a jazz kid, and I just liked jazz and classical music. And then when I started liking rock music, you know, I loved the great players like the virtuoso, like like Hendrix, and I like prog rock and stuff. But I went to go see these like local punk rock bands, and the confrontation of the audience, and like throwing out to the crowd, and the fighting, and the danger, and. All this stuff, it like, in one way, it was like scary and weird and sometimes mm-hmm. dumb, you yep. know? But that sort of thing, like, made me feel like anything was possible and that music, it wasn't just this thing where you learn how to play really well. It was just, you bring it to the people and you bond with the people and you, you, it's not always nice and it's scary, but it's fucking important and exactly. it's community and it's something that no one can touch. It's sacred. And in that fearlessness is the, the sacred gift of being, you know, of
2: humanity. Well, if you think about that became a very physical thing, but mm. like when I like in the early 60s and things when first hearing somebody like Roland Kirk or then Albert Eiler, the Eiler brothers or, you know, and, and then Ornette, people felt physically assaulted. People yeah. felt physically assaulted by Jackson Pollock. They felt yeah. physically assaulted by impressionism, but that's there's great beauty and risk in that and i think that it really it just like completely blew up uh yeah. in, in the punk rock music but yeah. that's needed all it's of like it sports, too like There's other know? things
1: you say like you know mishima yukio mishima he wrote that that very rarely do art and action come together but when they do it changes the world and i don't know i always yeah like, that's I, awesome I read that when i was really yeah. young and i just got goosebumps saying it
2: you know i used to have that written down it was like You know, when you're young, you write down certain little phrases. I keep them in my pocket. Yeah, that's an awesome, I forgot about that. That's awesome. Well, art and action. I mean, that's where you have Pollock, jazz, you know, it's like Elvin Jones, you know, art and action. We're going to take a quick
3: break. When we're back, Patty talks about how her single interaction with Jimi Hendrix influenced her life, how she shaped her kids' relationship with music, and a little bit about life at the Chelsea Hotel.
2: the only way you knew people was like seeing them live or maybe a little rock magazine or listen to the radio. And, but we were all in the same headspace, all against the war in Vietnam, all in a new culture based on love and peace. So, and there was no celebrity cult for
1: mm, rock stars. It wasn't so broken up into in criticism. And-
2: well, also rock stars, you know, Janis Joplin came into the Chelsea Yeah. I lived there. She was coming into my house. Yeah. The only difference between us is we all dressed the same and all was, her room was bigger. Mm. She had like a kitchen. Yeah, I had like a room, no bathroom. She had a a bathroom. I could go in and use her bathroom, you know?
1: That's so cool.
2: Yeah. It was, people were, it was different. They'd walk down the street. People weren't taking people's pictures or asking for autographs or nothing.
1: It seems too like when I, when I, um, like read things about that time and journalism or whatever. It's not so much. No one's like picking each other apart. It's kind of like this feeling of teamwork. Like, here's this thing. We got this thing. Like, are you clued in? Because there's some magic going on. Yeah. Like, it's less like, well, you're good. You're not good. You're a phony. You're real. More just like, let's get with it. Yeah. It (laughs) was just,
2: well, because ideologically, people were really into the same type of thing. I mean, people were, You know, we were part of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. You know, developing music globally and in you know in some language that equated with peace and love. And however, you know, corny that sounds to people now. At that time, it was a it was a mission. Yeah, it wasn't like you know uh, encapsulizing a hippie movement. It was a true mission where we and the people before us and. Not the people on the streets, but also our spokesmen, we really thought we could change the world, yeah, and we really, really thought that we need more of that now, well, it's so overwhelming now, you think it's hard to believe you can change the world, but yeah. you can influence, yeah, can influence I, it. you know
1: i I always have the feeling that the best things that you can do to start to create peace, to create togetherness, to build bridges and heal divides starts in a community like starts with one person like can you smile at one person you don't know in the street and maybe make them feel a little bit more connected it's like i think it's two kinds of people really there's those that know we're all connected and those that don't
2: i mean it's so funny i remember um we were talking earlier about meeting people and things um it was just the uh I think 51st anniversary of Electric Lady Studios. Yeah. And I was there, I was like 22, 23 years old when Jimi Hendrix opened that studio. Yeah. I remember, uh, I don't know, I was working in a bookstore, but I wrote record reviews to make a little extra money. And I was invited to the uh, opening of uh, Electric Lady Studios. And Jimi Hendrix had just opened the studio and he had so many hopes and dreams for this Um, not only being a place to make music, but to educate and, uh, spread a positive ideology through music. And I was like at this party and I was so shy and, uh, I was sitting on the steps and I remember I, I was trying to dress like East of Eden. I had this like long polka dot dress and a straw hat and (laughs) trying to like, you know, make an impression. And then I, I didn't have the nerve to go in and he had to leave to catch a plane and there he was. But you were sitting out front by yourself. No, I was sitting on his, the stairs of Electric Lady. Uh, yeah. And just sitting. I mean, he came out of the studio, and I was, like, in the way, because I didn't have the nerve to go in. Yeah. You know, and he said hello to me, and I, he said, you're not going in the party. And I said, oh, well, little shy. And he said, you know, and he told me that he was also shy. And he said, people don't know that, but he was shy himself. And then uh, he was telling me, he started telling me about the studio. He said, well, when you go in the studio, this is what I want to do with it. And he told me he wanted to travel the world, stop touring, travel the world and get musicians from all over the world and with all their different instruments and take them all to Woodstock and sit in a field like for a month playing like discordant, totally discordant, like Ornette Coleman or something or Albert Eiler and but keep playing and playing and playing till they like churned like butter and they found with all the different keys and all these strange instruments and all these different cultures one language. They found one language and he said, And you know what that language is? And I said, What? He said, The universal language of peace. You dig? And I was like, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then he left and I was like, Whoa. He he really felt that through that, they could take that music and then open up the world, you know, go anywhere in the world, find one, one, one universal tone or one universal uh, conversation or grammar that could include everyone. And uh, I never dreamed at that point, because that was 1970, I think, that five years later I'd be recording Horses there.
1: Yeah. Did he ever come back to America after that? Or no, is that he when died he died?
2: Uh, I mean he died only yeah. that was in uh August. That was in August and he yeah. died in September. So he literally died yeah. a couple of weeks later. Yeah. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. He was he he was just uh he had everything, everything you would want. Um, because not only did he have like such a beautiful look and and was so powerful as a performer, but he had hopes for the future. He had a vision. He was a visionary, but he didn't. He was only 27 years old. I yeah. was like 23 yeah. and he was like 27. And, uh, you know, I could, even though he was only a couple of years older than me, I could, I could see his vision. It was, it had a huge scope. Mm. And, um, and, you know, that's when I think about that, that's 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 the kind of things we believed in then and it was all love based yeah. just as you say and yeah. you're always love you're love based i try
1: and i you know i feel i guy. fail sometimes <laughs> i know that you know you're a focused and doting mother and your kids are grown up but when they were kids and they were growing up and you were you know they were hearing i'm sure they had plenty of music around you and Fred did you think of music like playing a role in their education as people coming up and is there like a certain way that you thought of it or what you wanted them to hear what you wanted them to be around or how you wanted them to develop in that way or what opportunities you wanted to give them through music
2: well Fred and I I mean as parents when we left the public and Mm. I left in 79 he Mm -hmm. left in 80 we left Mm. and we didn't bring that into our household I mean my kids didn't even know that I had a you know, any reputation. They only knew me as their mother. And uh, we lived very simply. And they knew that, you know, I sang at the house and Fred would, would play, but it was just normal part of living. Like it wasn't, they never saw us play music or perform music for money. They only knew us as, you know, dad would play guitar and sometimes we'd be sitting around. And mostly we played like Beethoven and Coltrane and the things Fred liked. Or sometimes I'd be in the mood to put on a lot of R and B songs and dance around the house. But music, I came from on my mother's side. Everyone played music. Yeah, but not for money. And on Fred's side, they were bluegrass country uh, players, but they were just players. You know, they played yeah. collar guitar. They played on the porch. My uncles they played banjo. My grandmother played mandolin. But they, they just did it to entertain each other. Yeah. So we brought that back into the sort of way of life. Yeah. Um, music and ambition were not presented together. It was just something that we did, and we yeah. let them evolve as, as they did. Yeah. And they both evolved into musicians. Yeah. But uh, Fred really felt very stung by a lot of his, uh, you know, what happened in terms of his life within the music business and being so young, being 15, start, um, starting the MC5. He 15? Be, 15 years wow. old, you know, and uh, he, he, he wanted to be a baseball player and he yeah. wound up um, having a band. But then they got introduced to so many things, to drugs, to so much violence and uh, politics and all of these things that by the time I met him at 26 years old, he felt like he had been, you know, bulldozed. Yeah. And he really didn't want the kids' image of music to be connected with drugs, fame and fortune. Yeah. He just wanted them to hear music yeah. and let them choose what they liked. Yeah. You know, it was really funny because I didn't I didn't start playing music again. I hadn't played music from seventy-nine or hadn't performed till after he died. He died in ninety-four, so around ninety-six I went back and, and to make a living to things going and we did our first tour bob dylan uh asked us to tour with him yeah. i think alan ginsburg asked him to give me a break so i could i would have a protective shell yeah. going back into the world and i took the kids yeah. with me you know and bob said you know said something to jack about me and jack's going she, she's just my mom and then a reporter said to jackson what do you think about your mom doing this and that and he goes Oh, she does the laundry and she cooks our <laughs> dinners and, you know, and she can sew a little, you know, that, that that's all he had to say. He wasn't,
4: yeah.
2: they only had a sense of me being their mother. Yeah. And it's really great because even now, now they play with me that, you know, Jackson's playing with me now and Jesse and I, sometimes the three of us perform, but we are really, first of all, you know, a family. Yeah, And, uh, you know, the, the rest is what it is. We yeah. haven't lost that thing. That, yeah. That's the kernel. Love, again, yeah. which is what you always introduce into everything, love is the kernel of our performance.
1: Yeah. In terms of music education, like, one of the most important things, and, and like, I love academic music education. Don't get me wrong. It's incredible, and I wish I would have had it when I was a kid. It would have helped me immeasurably. And now I'm always trying to grasp little things, you know, to my – but to, Basic principle of just loving music for what it is, for the process of doing it, whether it's just hanging out at home or it's a meditative thing to do when you're alone. And it's so easy for kids today and for anyone today to be completely lost and having to bring something to a marketplace. So I'm going to make it and I'm going to hustle and I'm going to be the one. And and I get it. You know, you want to survive in the world and it's difficult. And especially for people who, you know, grow up in really, you know, circumstances where it is really difficult to survive and it's just to have food and pay rent and do all that stuff. But having that freedom to just get lost in the process and, re- and reaping that reward, if it's the thing that you want to do as a career, it's going to come anyways. And your best chance of it coming most abundantly is by letting go of, you know, this, Holding on to it, you know, and I think one of the greatest things that I could ever tell any music student is just get, like, fall in love with it. Like, that's really it. Like, everything else, if you want it, it will come.
2: I think that also we have to, in in educating, in there's different ways of educating. Like you're yeah. touching on them. One is to educate them if they want to go higher and higher academically or in their uh, technical play or uh, whatever their ambition is but also to educate them that there's a, a slot for everyone even if your slot is sitting on your porch playing a few chords yeah. there's so many people are afraid to do that because they feel that oh well i'm you know i'm not that good or you know nobody'll like it 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 doesn't yeah. matter i mean i always tell people that i only can play like five or six chords on a on a guitar But those five or six chords have begat several songs and being able to like entertain people. I mean, I can go into a kitchen at a restaurant and play a little song for the chef, you know, that just to do that. And, uh, but just um, to have that, to have moments alone and just to, to feel connected with your instrument and the history of music and just a simple melody or I think that part of education. Is to educate people that it's open to everyone. It's open to everyone to appreciate, open to everyone to, you know, learn a little something for your own pleasure or for the pleasure of others, or as you said, to extend it, make a living, or to discover and, you know, write a new symphony.
1: Yeah. In today's world, I guess the thing that's changed more than anything over the last 20 years, whenever it is, is the computer, right? Like, most kids today who want to play music go do it on a computer as opposed to an instrument. They make beats, they make stuff, they do what they can. And they share all the ideas through social media and they look for validation. And sometimes I wonder, like in the worthy world is today, with this instant thing, like, oh, I did this thing here, everyone look at it, like, do you like it or not? And feeling like heartened or vice versa by the response that they get, I kind of worry about myself, like going to look at Instagram or something like, what am I doing with my time? I could have just drawn a drawing or, you know, or written a song. But um, it made me so happy when I saw you on there. I was like, oh, well, if Patty's on there. It's <laughs> well, okay. and, But I, I just wonder how, like, I know that, you know, you look on there and you see lots of young people trying to express themselves artistically or just expressing themselves. And I wonder how you see that as a role in the world today and how it is for yourself, like in in regards to your own, like your space and the space that you need to protect your sacred space of creativity and um, your pattiness.
2: I mean, I, I, I get an opportunity to talk a lot of, well, when we were performing a lot or doing a lot of lectures and things and, letting the people ask me a lot of questions. And one thing that worried me is that so many young people were asking me about publicists, marketing, things like that that I don't really know anything about. I don't yeah. have a publicist. And I would try to dial them back and I'd say, well, the most important thing is the work. Yeah. The work is the thing that endures. And it's nice to get you know some kind of um, accolades or financial reward and all of that that's all fleeting process belongs to the artist yeah that's my sacred space you know all the struggle that we go through to finish a poem to write a song to you know all of that it's it's private it's visceral it's beautiful it's a drag (laughs) but it's ours but once we produce something it belongs to the people but it's a shame to lose contact with process
1: absolutely
2: and uh, because content or you know just product it will fall away
1: i I remember you telling me once you said flea all we ever have is our names yeah and what do people feel when they hear your name that's the truth you can snowball a lot of shit you can fake your way through a lot of things and hustle and put on an act but bottom line is your name is gonna ring something.
2: Well, William Burrs told me that when I was maybe twenty two. Uh-huh. In the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel, we were sitting in that old couch together, and he said, I was asking him, I had a moral quandary. Yeah. And he said, My dear, keep your name clean. Keep your name clean. No matter what happens in the world, you know, whatever decision you make you know just keep your name clean i mean of course we make mistakes and we stumble but there there are mistakes that are you know out of you know youthful visionary hubris that one doesn't have to regret and uh you know we just that's what we we, wow. we do our best yeah one
1: doesn't have to repeat either
2: flee it's a good name <laughs> thanks Ben. <Betty. laughs> After the final break, we
3: close it out with a story about how in a classroom in 1960s New Jersey, Patty's eighth grade teacher, Mr. Myers, helped her discover a greater hope for mankind.
4: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me
0: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today
4: selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast.
1: You know, I think we're probably getting towards the end of this. Um, I guess just one more question. You know, in terms of you know this this podcast is speaking to people about music education and its role, and I feel like we've spoken about that and I really love it because you know when we decided to make this thing, I thought you know it's about you know it's for the music school and it's about music education, and everybody's education is completely different. you know everyone has a like, sees things differently and is drawn to music this magical thing in a different way and um you know we've spoken about today, and we know how valuable the role of music is in in the world, and and how much effect it can have in, in hopefully creating positive change and the massive changes that need to be made. Um, is there any particular thing that you hold on to, like a light that gives you
2: hope? Well, I I mean I always uh, quote Jimi Hendrix here with a question in that realm. And he said, "In I think Merman turned the ties. Hooray! I wake from yesterday. Every day when I wake up, I have breath, and where there's breath, there's life, and where there's life, there's hope. And I feel that every single day. But I wanted to say one other thing. Uh, While we were talking, I remembered that. Sorry, I had a music teacher when I was." maybe eighth grade. And his name was Mr. Myers and he had a terrible stutter. And uh, I went to this lower middle class school and the kids, you know, they weren't really that interested and uh, he would bring in his little record player and play Debussy and all these different uh, classical pieces. And then he brought in um, some works of Giuseppe Verdi and the kids were like, spitballing them. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And I remember him like shaking and then everybody like left and I was transported Uh. by, he was playing the, he was playing the uh, end of, um, maybe it was Puccini, the aria where, um, yes, it was from Tosca. Sorry. It was a Puccini where the painter is about to get executed and he's singing this little song. And at the end, he says, um, "Never have I loved life more than this moment, the moment before he was going to lose it." And this teacher uh, playing this music, I felt listening to this music, complete hope for the future. I thought, and and hope about the past. I thought, with all the things that mankind's done wrong, the bomb and wars and all the things that you learn about as a kid, people also did that. People also wrote this music that was so transporting, and they can again. And um, that teacher, Mr. Myers, he wound up leaving. I don't know what happened to him, but I think of him often. He introduced um, music in a way, yes, I had heard it on the radio, but he talked about it. He told us about these these uh, composers. He 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 explained these operas uh, to us, and you know you can imagine South Jersey in 1961. You know, kids weren't that interested in uh, uh, Verdi or and Puccini grade too, right? <laughs> in, eighth, <I> mean, <laughs> in eighth grade. Yeah, <laughs> and um, they're listening to U.S. bonds or whatever. But yeah. um, I still feel grateful to him our teachers you know you have yeah. a teacher in your life that opens a, a door and i i i felt a hope for mankind it's hard to explain it it's just this when i heard this i felt like this was done you know a century two centuries ago and 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 work like this will or a different kind of work will be done two centuries ahead and that thread just made me feel like you know we we were a, a glowing um uh beautiful people in spite of everything else around us yeah so a little salute to my old music teacher
1: yeah, mr. Awesome.
2: Myers. <laughs> mr myers
1: mr myers <laughs> you know, i think for for music teachers the, on the other side it's equally profound you know i was you know my professional career is such that I don't teach much because I just I get too distracted by work, Um, and consistency is so important. But there was one six-month period where I taught here, and I had a bunch of students. I taught trumpet and I taught bass, and so I had some great ones. I had some that were real, you know, lazy. But there was this one kid, and he was he was a troubled kid, you know. You know, he lived in orphanages. Institutions, you know, have been like sent that to families adopted, sent back, and I was teaching him trumpet, and he would pick it up to his mouth and play it like, <laughs> and it was the most determined I ever saw anybody want to play a note, the intensity that he did it with, and and um, that thing like, and I'm you know, there's little triumphs like I just taught for that little while, but seeing that kid like. Through, and he ended up like actually getting a music scholarship and going to USC and, and all this stuff. let later on, but this was like he was little. And, um, but seeing that kind of determination from a teacher, from one kid out of a zillion, is so awesome, you know, and so life affirming and so like we will not be denied. Like the beautiful spirit is there no matter what. And it manifests in so many different ways. And I know that, like, in here, in all these little rooms, and little music rooms, these things are happening all the time. Like, these triumphs happen quietly, and you don't see them. But they're, they're important. And, like, when little Patty was touched by Mr. Myers playing the Puccini, you know, these are important things. And, and you know, education is, is a great, great gift that, that we all have, and I know that. Like, even when we're playing something that's not necessarily for a little kid, it always is, you know? And it always will be.
2: Because it it's innocence. It connects with purity. Yeah. But it's so we both had little tears. I had tears <laughs> for the I had tears for the teacher. You had tears <laughs> for the student. And yeah. um, tears of love for both of them.
1: Absolutely. A huge thank you to Patty Smith for coming town and giving her time and heart and energy. To all the kids at Silver Lake Conservatory for being my friends. And all of us together, as always, to serve Silver Lake Conservatory Music, a community-based nonprofit music school. This
3: Little Light is a presentation of Cadence 13, executive produced by Flea, Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, and parallel partners Ken Cow, Nicholas Gonda, and me, Jocelyn Florence. The show's lead producer is Julia Smith, with engineering by Kean Reardon and Ryan Martz. Our show's original theme music is composed by Flea himself. Special thanks to Chris LaSalle, Alex Barron, Ian Turner, Michelle Moses, and Jennifer Ray and her entire team at the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music. Listen and follow This Little Light, a presentation of Cadence 13, on the Odyssey app, or wherever you get your podcasts.